Hi, I am Allison Way, and welcome to the XT Stential Podcast. That is X Essential with the word T, you know, T E A in the middle, just like the drink. So I love asking people really deep questions, and this is what this podcast is all going to be about. I kind of picture this podcast where I'm just talking to you like we're two friends talking over a cup of hot tea because. Honestly, the best conversations are always with tea involved. So this podcast is going to be part philosophical rantings about life, you know, existentialism, part shower thoughts, but also part journal entry as I reflect on my own life and hopefully prompt you to do the same. So without further ado, grab a cup of tea and let's get into some existential stuff. What are four words that you will never forget? For me, when I look back at my whole 12 years of education, this simple phrase comes to mind. And it's, we all worship something. So that's a paraphrase from David Foster Wallace's famous, this is water graduation speech. And I remember reading this in the junior year of high school, you know, in like a fluorescent, badly lit classroom with like chairs that like hurt my posture. But I read this and I just got such like a deep feeling of like resonating with something where I was like, my soul felt like this is true. And that may seem overdramatic, but it's just that feeling of truth that's so much more than just like reading a text so i can be like that's a fact like no this is facts <laughs> on a much deeper level and wallace touches on something that's so important but i think something that often gets lost in the shuffle of life which is the law of priority so in other words what do we worship and in what order and i think this is so important because we really become what we behold and i've heard that saying before but as i grow up i feel like that is really true that what we treasure really like that's an outflow in our life but too often we actually don't take time to determine our priorities and life is so busy so we put it off to another time and we think we're like in this no man's land gray zone of i'm just gonna keep going and finish up my life will make it to like another life stage where I can do the reflection but what ends up happening isn't that we have like no priorities it's just that we don't set them and society or something else sets our priorities for us and if I'm being honest that is uh, partly my story I would say see I guess I've always thought of myself as like this deep individual who values reflection but uh during quarantine i had the opportunity to go through a number of existential crises which is obviously you know like extremely fun (laughs) but it was a combination of having more time to think of having literally nothing else to do but to examine my own thoughts (laughs) and also because of the fact that i went through the college application process as a high school senior And can I just say that there is something so uniquely striking about being asked to summarize your life in 650 words, 500 words, 250 words. And when I looked at that, 
at my whole life summarized in what was basically a Google Drive folder, I couldn't help but be like, is this it? Like, yeah, on the surface, I seemed like a successful overachieving student, overachieving student, but like most of Troy High. But in reality, I couldn't help but feel this pang of regret. And it here's why. Um, I read this one verse in quarantine that really changed my life. Uh, and it's Philippians 2.4, which says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And I probably have seen this verse multiple times before. I always skimmed over it. And kind of took it as like a, don't be a selfish person, be good, <laughs> you know, type of thing. But when I actually read it, I realized that that's not what this verse was saying. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. So not even one action, not a thought. And the challenge of doing nothing out of selfish ambition was terrifying to me. Because when I looked at my life, I realized that that was simply not true. And if I wanted to live a life that didn't have any selfish ambition, I would have to make a lot of changes um, in my life, but also do a lot of heart work and change my motivations. For so long, I have thought of myself as like an ambitious person, but when I really get down to it, I have to ask myself the question, ambitious for what? <laughs> Looking at my high school career, as much as there were moments when I genuinely tried to help others and love people, and I still to this day think that that is a core value of mine, I think most of my life was self-focused. I was concentrated on getting the best grades, winning the next competition, leading clubs, and I was trying to do that with excellence. And these things are not bad things in and of itself, but altogether really point to the fact that I was measuring my life by the wrong things. And by things that are wrong, I mean that these are things that simply don't last and by that measure don't really matter. So what I kind of took from this whole existential crisis is I was really trying to find purpose in myself and I couldn't find it because purpose is always tied to serving others and I want how I measure my life to reflect that. So that is why I'm here. So in this podcast, we are going to explore the question, how will you measure your life? This question is based off of Clayton Christensen's famous book titled exactly the same thing, How Will You Measure Your Life? And just a little bit of background about Clayton Christensen. He's a Harvard Business School professor, so obviously he has some credibility there. But then he also went through cancer in part of his life, and he wrote this book after he went through that. So... I'm going off to college, and it's really one of those formative years. I'm obviously growing up, and I read this book because I wanted to make sure I'm measuring my life by the proper standard as I build a life for myself. But before we get into the details of what I learned from the book and the life lessons, I thought it was only appropriate to get some other opinions in on this question before my own. So I asked three people in my life that I love a lot um, from different age groups because I wanted to see if their answers changed or not depending on their life stage. 
So I asked my younger sister, Lily, who was 15, my friend Parvati, who is basically my same age, and my dad, who is obviously much older, almost 50, and I asked all of them the same question. How do you measure your life? And here are their responses. So first up, we have my younger sister, Lily, and welcome to the podcast, Lily. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Okay, so Lily... How do you or how will you measure your life? Um, so I think for me, one of the biggest things is how I am going to impact other people. So like, um, definitely like hopefully positive things, but things like the donations I give or maybe just like doing small things I don't realize can help other people. Um, obviously, like I won't be able to know everything, but I feel like having a positive impact is like a huge thing. I think another thing that's a little bit more personal would be the different experiences I have and like how I feel and am I happy during my life? Like, am I sad? Do I stress about things I didn't need to stress about? So I guess living my best life, so to speak, a little cliche, but um, just having a bunch of experiences, having a good time and hopefully making other people's lives better. Yes, I love that. So basically, your, like, positive social impact, I would say, and also just, like, mental health well-being. Yeah, for sure. Okay, thank you, Lily. Hi, Parvati. Welcome. So, how will you measure your life? Hi, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. So, I guess the answer that I would want to give to this question is that I measure my life in happiness, but in reality, that's not really true. We all measure success throughout our life based on accomplishments and how those accomplishments coincide with our dreams. Whether your accomplishment is finally making it to the Great Barrier Reef or becoming a CEO, we don't necessarily think about achieving these things as the key to happiness, but as the completion of a goal. Happiness is oftentimes pretty relative, and despite the fact that we all hope to attain that at some point, many times when I think about myself, I'd rather achieve my childhood dream of running for office than achieve true happiness living in a small hut in Bali. Oh, no. Okay, I think that's actually so interesting. Um, Definitely a really unique answer that like makes me think a lot about dreams and also what they mean. Um, Thank you so much, Parvati. Okay, and next up, lastly, we have my dad. Hi, Daddy. Welcome to the podcast. So now I will ask you the question, how will you measure your life? Great question. Three ways. First, I measure it based on the contribution and the value I bring to the table. So in other words, not based on, you know, the total value and how much I make and how many people report to me. Rather, what I actually do to add value to the process. Second is, uh, to what degree I have lived authentically and the way God has made me. And third is the legacy in terms of the values, the life experiences, and to a degree, the wealth that I will leave for my children. Wow, okay. I love this question. I think it is so interesting to hear people's answers just because it really points to how people define like how they get their happiness but also how they measure their success and it brings like this depth to relationships 
Um, but happiness and success, ultimately, those things in life, that's really what we're all striving after. And I think Parvati really touched on something important. How there's this balance between our happiness and success. For the purposes of the question we're addressing today, I think the key to determining how we'll measure our life is making sure our measurements for happiness and success are aligned. But out of all these podcast responses or interview answers of how they stated they would measure their life, a few themes emerged, I think. There's this idea of meaningful work, whether that's in experiences, relationships, or just adding value to people's lives. And there's also this idea of living with impact, with legacy, and with morality. And these themes all touch on what Clayton Christensen also defines in his book as to what we should measure our life by and what really makes a good life. He uses a slightly different phrasing than the people I interviewed, but he outlines three categories. And they are, number one, a fulfilling job. Number two, secure and stable relationships. And number three, a life of integrity. These are all things I think that we all want in some shape or form. And these three categories are things are going to be our framing lens for us to explore further on how to measure our life. What I think is particularly interesting about these measurements of life that Christensen talked about and also uh, what Parvati Lily and my dad all talked about is how starkly different they are than how our society defines success. When we think of success, I don't think integrity, unfortunately, is the first word that comes to mind. And when you look at someone and you're like, oh yeah, like they, they're so successful for sure. Like just look at what they've done. Or you think of your goals in life and you're like, I, to be successful, I need this, this, and this. Our gut instinct is often wealth, job, titles, flashy cars. So basically power, money, and status. That's not to say that that's necessarily what we believe that success is, but it's certainly what we're conditioned to believe. And if this is the image of success that society preaches to us and really advertises to us, I think it's important we ask the question, is this the right measure? After all, the default measure of what we unconsciously chase after if we don't set our priorities and let society set them for us is these things. So I think it's especially important we dig into this. So first up, money. So according to a Princeton University study, beyond a certain point when your financial needs are covered, approximately $75,000 a year, money actually does not make you happy when you look at emotional well-being. So money probably is not a good measure for a life well-lived. But for me, I've never been super money-minded Uh, which is probably just a reflection of the fact that I grew up in a relatively economically privileged household. But I always thought that if I had this amazing job where it was secure job, I had some type of like fancy title, a great salary, that if I had those things, I would be happy. I would have made it in a sense. And that kind of goes into this societal idea that success is power or status, like I talked about earlier. But it turns out 
that is also not completely true. The How Will You Measure Your Life book goes over the study from the Harvard Business Review on work satisfaction. And all those factors of title, salary, work conditions, those are called hygiene factors. And they keep you from being dissatisfied at work. But it doesn't mean you will be satisfied, even if you have all that. There's a whole other set of variables called motivators, which are things like, are you challenged at your work? Uh, do you experience personal growth at work? Uh, how much responsibility do you have at work? Those are the things that if you have those, that is what actually makes you satisfied. So when I read this in the book, it was kind of a wake-up call for me because by unconsciously prioritizing hygiene factors in my life, I realized I was basically setting myself up for a life where I would be complacently annoyed, <laughs> which is probably honestly the worst position you could be in. I heard this quote once, and I think it really applies. Uh, it's this idea that there's nothing more tragic than being successful at what doesn't matter. Or there's nothing worse than having everything you want in life and still feeling unsatisfied. So, if these notions of societal success don't align with what actually makes us happy, the question becomes, okay, so what actually does make us happy? And how should our measure of success and our measure of life change to adapt to that? You know, obviously, when I think of what makes me happy, I'm like, cake, cake makes me happy. But I actually wanted to know, beyond personal experience, is there a way I can know what makes me happy in the long term, in the sustained fashion, beyond just trial and error and a lot of cake? So during quarantine, I started taking this class on Coursera called The Science of Well-Being, also known as The Science of How to Be Happy. And it's actually the most popular class at Yale. So I did not get into Yale. <laughs> Hello, Yale. But um, this is my way of not paying $70,000 in tuition, but taking the classes for free. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Professor Lori Santos, who teaches this class, starts off by talking about these misaligned intuitions we have of what will make us happy. So not just the misaligned intuitions we have when we think of our job, but in our life as a whole. And she calls these things miswantings. These miswantings include dream job, money, hot body, awesome stuff, true love, good grades. Research shows that we significantly overestimate that these things will make us happy. Yes, I know what you're thinking. Even true love, even if you get married with that one person. I don't know if you believe in soulmates, but studies have shown we do get this initial boost of happiness after we get into a relationship. Think of the honeymoon phase. But our minds actually adjust and go back to our baseline happiness that's basically similar to what we had before the relationship itself. And that little description is basically something called the hedonic treadmill. And it applies to so many situations when we experience something new, something happy, but our mind are just naturally wired to go back to that baseline happiness. So, we don't want to be chasing after all of these things that don't actually be ha make us happy in the long term, right? 
So rather, when we examine the field of positive psychology and the literature on what actually makes us happy, they all point back to those three categories of measuring our life that I talked about earlier. Fulfilling job, meaningful relationships, and living a moral and integrity-filled life. Uh, Just one side note here that I did want to mention. Meaningful relationships does not mean that you can't find love in those relationships. But when we refer to this idea of true love, it's like that fantasy love you see in movies and all that. But I just wanted to share with you what I learned based on the research from this Science of Wellbeing class. And just for organization's sake, I'm going to go over these research findings one by one by organizing them in the three categories of happiness that Clayton Christensen outlines in his book. The first category is a fulfilling job. But how do you define fulfilling? According to research done by Martin Seligman, I hope I'm saying that right, director who is the director of of the Positive Psychology Center at UPenn, A fulfilling job is one where you are able to consistently use something called signature strengths. So signature strengths are basically the fact that we all have things we're naturally good at. Maybe you're just a very creative person or you have a lot of social intelligence. There's this whole list of signature strengths that you can check out. But when we focus on opportunities to utilize those signature strengths in our jobs rather than on money, we are happier in our careers. So we should be seeking our jobs out based on the opportunities to use our talents rather than money or status. The second category of happiness that Clayton identifies is life-giving relationships or meaningful relationships. And this is something that science backs up as well. There are so many studies that show the value of social connection. When you have strong social ties, you are happier and you're healthier. Even talking to strangers or sharing experiences with others, telling them about a vacation, for example, that makes you happier. I think it's important to address the fact that a lot of times we understand this, right? Like no one is like, oh, meaningful relationships won't make me happy. But the problem is a lot of times we have excuses. We're just like, We don't have time. We have school or work or life is busy. It's certainly, I don't want to demean that stuff. That's extremely valid. But another scientific finding that I think is particularly interesting in this case is that people who have more free time, aka more time to spend with their loved ones, are happier than people with more money. So that's kind of a challenge to all of us, I think to have our priorities reflect this and make an intentional effort to have this free time. And lastly, the last category Clayton Christensen talks about when measuring our life is living a life of integrity. Not only is this a good thing to do, but it actually makes us happier as well. Studies show that kinder people are happier. And even when we look at our spending habits, if you spend money on other people rather than yourself, you actually feel happier. So I just talked about some research and evidence and science. And if you're like me, I find that stuff really interesting. So hopefully you did too. But I think deep down, we don't need studies to tell us this. We all have this feeling intuitively that there must be more in life than what we can show on Instagram 
or our resume. So we know this, right? Like these are the things that actually make us happy. But even knowing this, we keep on reverting back to those faulty measures of life. And before we move further, I think we, I really just want to ask this question. Like, why do we do this? Because if we really want to measure our lives correctly, we can't just know these these things. We have to live it out, which is the much harder part. And Clayton Christensen provides an answer that's so much better than I ever could. And he says, and I quote, The danger for high-achieving people is that they'll unconsciously allocate their resources to activities that yield the most immediate, tangible accomplishments. This is often in their careers, as this domain of their life provides the most concrete evidence that they are moving forward. I want to focus in on the part specifically about concrete evidence that our life is moving forward. See, it's not just enough for us to just live like a fulfilling or successful life to us personally, but we have to prove it. And that's the danger. Measuring our lives is messy. None of us are good judges of ourselves right now, let alone people or our whole lifetime. I mean, that's kind of insane, right? But when you think about things that are actually fulfilling, how fulfilling are your relationships? Am I a person of integrity? Am I finding meaning in my work? These are not things you can intrinsically prove with numbers or put in like a little line on your resume. This is not something that we can just meet someone for like five minutes, make a snap judgment about them and think that we know things about their life. So we settle for something else, something easier. As Clayton says in his book, we do something called aggregating. We develop a sense of hierarchy where, for example, people who preside over more people are more important than people who are leaders of fewer people. This is just an example, but we do this type of aggregating of making these snap judgments daily in our life. But can I just be honest here? Like, I have actually, I've lived this mindset. I have a problem with comparison and this whole process of measuring people and comparing them with each other as better or worse it just it feels so unhealthy and how can we expect life to come out of a mindset and process that is inherently destructive so from this I arrived at this kind of weird paradox that in order to live a truly fulfilling life we need to sacrifice our need to prove that we are we must die to others' approval of us, basically. And this is really hard, <laughs> especially for me as a people pleaser. From a young age, we are primed to like have a plan, something to show for our lives, to show that we're on the right track, and we're taught that the right answer to what you want to be in life isn't kind, loving, or like purpose-filled, but doctor, lawyer, or investment banking. But even if it's hard, I think we know that it's worth it. So now we get to the part of this podcast where we ask ourselves, how will we measure our lives? Obviously, we all want those three categories, but in more specific terms, what does that look like for us? And 
it starts with answering these three simple but honestly really hard questions. Number one, what is my purpose? Number two, how will I commit to that purpose? And number three, what metrics will I use to measure those things? So this question of purpose, um, honestly, it's a really sucky question, (laughs) if I'm being honest. It was really scary for a long time in my life. It's one of those questions where it's like, I don't know. ah. But I think now, after almost a year of reflection and also seeking God on this, because faith is really important to me and I think my purpose is inherently born out of that, I think I have a general impression of what my purpose is, even though it's totally not set in stone. So in one sentence, here's what I think it is. I want to be someone that shows other people their value and encourages them to both see and live out their potential. And before I go into the details of like what this means, I think it's kind of helpful to go over how I personally arrived here at my purpose. Uh, I want to say I took a pretty biblical approach to finding my purpose. Um, In other words, I was like seeking God's will for my life because my relationship with God is my number one priority in life. But even if you do not have a faith, I think it's helpful to know these principles. And the best advice I've gotten on discerning your purpose is finding out two things. Finding out your compassions and looking at your giftings. So with compassion, it's really the question of what keeps you up at night? What stirs your heart? Like, what do you actually cry over? There is this Viktor Frankl quote that's really applicable here. And it says, for success, like happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. So when I think of what cause I want to dedicate myself to, I can't help but think that I wish everyone knew their true worth. That like feeling of not being good enough, of needing to measure up to something, is something I've struggled with all my life. Uh, even from childhood, to be honest. But in ninth grade in high school, I had this radical encounter with God where I just felt so unconditionally loved. Not because I did anything, but just because God loved me. And just knowing that, knowing I could find my value and worth in that it changed my whole perspective in life. And when I think about purpose, there's nothing I'd rather dedicate my life to than showing others their true value because I've experienced how painful the opposite can be. So the first part of my purpose is about my compassions. But the second part of my purpose, where I talk about encouraging others in my like statement of purpose, that relates to my giftings or aka where my strengths are. There is this biblical principle that everyone has received different gifts from God, whether that be knowledge, wisdom, leadership, and one of them is exhortation or encouragement. But again, I want to emphasize, even if you're not Christian, I think that idea that each person has their own gifts and unique talents that are born into them or that are fostered is something you see in popular culture for sure as well. 
when I look at my life, I have always been someone who really just enjoys randomly complimenting people and getting to empathize and walk with people through situations where they need encouragement. Uh, specifically over quarantine, I've been trying to make an effort to intentionally do this by listening to my friends if they need like extra encouragement, uh, baking them random surprise cookies, uh, just like writing super long birthday cards to them and all that stuff. And I've had friends tell me that it has really helped them in an impactful way. So that's why in my purpose, I specifically want to encourage them. Not only because I, I do get life from that as well, but I also want to bring life to others through that. Okay, so like this might sound kind of good, but practically, how do I live this purpose out? And this leads us to our second question of how do I commit to this purpose? Obviously, when you think about practically living out a purpose, you think of your job or your career because obviously you spend so much time in that on the daily. But for a long time, I kind of separated in, separated in my mind career Allison and like purpose Allison, which sounds really stupid when you say it out loud, but that is just how my brain works. Don't ask me why. But I'm going to business school in the fall and when you think of business, you don't really think of encouragement and empathy. You think like numbers, Wall Street, essentially the opposite, right? But this other day, I was thinking about this and I had this epiphany when I realized I don't have to separate these two things. I can't separate my purpose and my vocation. And in fact, I cannot Something I hope to explore in college is actually possibly pursuing a marketing concentration where I create advertising campaigns that show people their value. You know, instead of advertising, especially for women, that exploits all our body image insecurities, I want to do the opposite and place a priority on socially conscious marketing that when people see it, they are affirmed and they are uplifted. And that's something I'm genuinely excited for in college but beyond career i also want to live out this purpose in the rest of my life to my friends and to my family and to do that i think i really need to commit to investing in community so being someone who reaches out first to people and just like to hang out and like setting up regular times to meet with people like for example i try to go on a walk every week at the same time with this one specific friend and right now for college I also want to prioritize planting myself in certain communities, like, for example, a church community. Uh, On a more personal growth level, I also want to be someone my friends can go to for encouragement and not be afraid that I'll judge them when they are being vulnerable. So something I'm kind of trying to do better is listening more because I have a tendency to talk a lot, as you can definitely tell, but... To achieve that level of personal growth, I need to have time to journal and pray and spend time with God because that's how I personally grow. So to commit to this purpose, I cannot be a workaholic and I need to intentionally set work-life balance boundaries. So lastly, the question is, what metrics will I use to make sure I'm sticking to this plan of purpose that I'm committing to, right? I have thought about this, and 
to be honest, I don't think I can give you like a scientific breakdown on this variable correlates to that variable and tables and graphs of like, this is the metrics. I am not a very scientific person, to be honest, but that just kind of seems like a lot of work. But I think a very simple answer to what metrics I will use to make sure I'm following my purpose is just by looking at my calendar. Like evaluating my schedule for the day or even the whole month. Like how much time am I spending on what? Obviously, like I have school, <laughs> but how much time am I spending on journaling, on volunteering, on baking for others or just like meeting with friends? I think I might just like track the time I spend on these things or just be mindful of them, you know, and looking at them, really examining them. And to me, that is the simplest way, but probably the most insightful way to measure my progress on this purpose because as much as I'm saying these things, purpose doesn't really become purpose until you live it out and you live that out through how you spend your time. Okay, so thank you so much for going on this journey with me to answer the deep, dare I say, existential question of how will you measure your life? Just this whole process of making the podcast and also reading the How Will You Measure Your Life book by Clayton Christensen, but also the, the Yale class thingy, uh, it's been such a transformative process and I've totally learned a lot just about not only myself, but like world perspectives, I guess. I genuinely hope that this podcast encourages you to also dig deep and ask yourself the same question. How will you measure your life? Whatever answer you end up arriving at, I promise you it will be worth your time discovering. Mm-hmm.